Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been reading uh, about David's life together from the books of First and Second Samuel. And last week, uh, we read about David running uh, from Jerusalem, running uh, to escape from his son Absalom, who had uh, launched a coup to take his throne away from him. So for the second time uh, in his life, David is on the run for his life, and he is living in the wilderness. So for the next two weeks, what we're going to do is look at Psalms that are traditionally tied to that period in David's life. And this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 63 together. So I'll read that for us. You can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would meet us, um, every one of us, in exactly the places where we find ourselves this morning. Um, those of us who feel ready to hear from you and those of us who don't feel ready. Those of us uh, who have faith and those of us who don't and those of us who aren't sure. Father, what I ask is that you'd meet all of us through this song and uh, that you would show us the grace of Jesus, that we'd be able to see it very clearly and that that thing that we sang together would be true, that we would see that he is our hope in life and death. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, Allison, uh, my wife and I, we just had an anniversary, and so we were reminiscing uh, about something that happened on our honeymoon. Uh, <clears throat> we were on a hike, and a woman that we had never seen before, never talked to before, never met before, approached us and she congratulated us on being newlyweds, which was a little bit weird because we didn't have like shirts on that said that we were newlyweds or buttons or anything like that. So we asked her, how do you know? And uh, she told us that our wedding rings were really, really shiny and that there weren't any scratches on them and that that was the dead giveaway. Um, well, I got to tell you, that story comes up between Allison and I all of the time. Uh, as we and our rings age. And it actually makes me like my ring a lot more with the passing years, which is pretty cool. But of course you know that our rings are, are simply a token of our life together. 
uh, as meaningful as it is to me, um, my ring is nothing at all compared to Allison. <laughs> I mean, the token is great, but the real thing is much, much better. And I'm not telling you that to score easy romantic points with my wife, although if she gives those points to me, I will take them. I'm telling you that because it mirrors something that happened as David fled from Jerusalem, something that points to Psalm 63. So we looked at that flight, part of it at least last week, in 2 Samuel 15, when David fled from Jerusalem, all the family that left with him, all of the servants, uh, all of the soldiers uh, that left with him, passed in front of him. And the Levites did too, the priests, uh, and they did it carrying the Ark of the Covenant. If you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, uh, it's an important piece of worship furniture that was in the sanctuary. It was a token. It was a token of the presence of God with his people. It represented God's presence with his people. And so naturally, the priests thought that David would surely want that to go with him into the wilderness. But David says, turn around and take it back to the city. And this is what he said to them. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me back and he'll let me see it in Jerusalem. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, then behold, here I am. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. This is a guy who knows. This is a guy who knows that the token of God's presence is not nearly as important as the actual presence of God himself. David doesn't care much about the furniture. What he needs and what he wants is God himself. I mean, listen, all of David's skill and all of his cunning and smarts all of his talent, all of his leadership ability, which we have learned over the last few months, are very formidable and abundant. All of that stuff had failed him, and his life was unraveling. Things were falling apart. And so instead of thinking, I'm going to lean into that stuff again, <laughs> David starts leaning into the only reality that matters. He leans into God. He rests in God. I mean, listen, listen to what David says to God in this psalm, okay? He says, my soul thirsts for you, and my flesh faints for you. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. My soul clings to you. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. I mean, Psalm 63 is one of only a small handful of psalms that express this depth of devotion. John Donne, who knew a little bit about poetry <laughs> and how poetry works and the ways poetry communicates, John Donne said that the spirit and the soul of the whole book of Psalms is contracted into this psalm. Psalm 63. And I think that you and I can learn from it. In whatever wilderness we may find ourselves, either now or in the future, at the end of whatever resources we might have, no matter how great they are. This is a song of trust, and it falls into two parts. 
there is hunger and fear, and then there is feast and safety. So David begins uh, with the hunger, and he begins with the fear. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David is in the wilderness. He is not there for a day hike. He is not there to take a spiritual retreat. David is in the wilderness because he is running for his life from his own flesh and blood, his own son. It's not too difficult to imagine the amount of pain, the amount of sadness that accompanied these words. And for David, they were no doubt heightened by the fact that he knew that his own failures as a king and his own failures as a father had played no small part in him being in that place. And so I think it's worth people like us asking ourselves just for a minute, you know, what do we do when we are in some kind of wilderness, whatever that wilderness might look like? It takes on a lot of different looks in our lives over the years, you know, our health fails or our job prospects look bad or maybe someone that we love has turned on us or maybe there's a relationship that's been meaningful to us that's thinning out and falling away. Maybe we just can't seem to make the pieces of our life come together. And it, and it messes with us because we're so thoughtful, so skilled, and so sharp. But it just won't work. What do we do then? What do people like us do? Well, I asked that question um, really to highlight the, the profound and holy subversiveness of what David does in that moment. When David's life unravels, he starts singing a love song to God. <laughs> That's what this is. As David puts it in verse 2, I behold you in all of your power, and I behold you in all of your glory. And then David begins to give words to this deep affection that comes up in him. And in verse 3, he just comes out and says that, God, your steadfast love to me, it is better than life. I mean, listen to that, church. He, he doesn't say, it's one of several good things in my life. He doesn't say um, that, that it is, uh, you know, the best thing in life. David says, God, your love for me, it is better than life. And what I want to say is that part of you and I growing up in our faith is believing that that's true and letting that truth shake down into every part of who we are. I love that story um, that we heard in the gospel lesson, that story where Jesus meets that woman at the well. You know, she sees Jesus and she knows that he's got something, but she's not sure exactly what it is that he's got. And she, you know, wants to talk some theology with Jesus, but Jesus is not having that. And he just says to her, listen, if you drink the water that I give to you, you'll never be thirsty again. This is important. I mean, Jesus doesn't say, look, if you drink the water that I give to you, everything in your life is going to be fine from this point on. Jesus does not say to her, if you drink the water that I give to you, nothing bad will ever happen to you again. He does not say that. 
he says something so much better than that. He says, I can give you something that will satisfy you forever no matter what happens to you and no matter what mess you find yourself in. He's talking, you know, about himself. And church, I think we have to take Jesus very seriously here, even the most skeptical among us. I think we have to take this seriously and try it on and find if it is true, because this is an ultimate claim if there ever was one. Jesus is saying that the unending, steadfast, faithful love that he offers to us is actually what human beings have been made for. It's what every human has been made for. Jesus is saying that he is the one thing in life that rightly orders all of the other things in our lives. He is the one thing in our life that makes sense out of all the other things in our lives. The good stuff, the bad stuff, the ordinary in-between stuff, All of it. He is the one in whom everything coheres and in whom everything holds together. (laughs) Uh, To to paraphrase Pascal, he says that um, we human beings have this infinite abyss in us. And we try in vain to fill it with everything around us but it can only be filled with the infinite. And here's what Jesus is saying, I'm holding this out to you, for you to take. The water that you were created to drink forever, it's his life for ours. It's his life for the life of the world. And you know, we know, don't we, uh, through experience, and if we don't know it yet, if we don't know it right now sitting here, we will know it eventually. (laughs) No human gets a pass on this. We know from experience that staking our lives and our identities and our happiness on things that are less than infinite always leaves us thirsty and unsatisfied in the end. And it's because things that are less than infinite just cannot hold the weight of our humanness. And they cannot hold the weight of all of the losses and pain and contingencies that pile up against us. No job can ever do that. No relationship can ever do that. No amount of physical fitness can do that. No accomplishment can do that. No bank account balance can do that. And David knew this. The steadfast love of God was all that he had out there in the wilderness. It was all that he had. And so he sings this song to say that he knows it's more than enough. In verse 4, he says, I'll bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. And this is where the psalm turns towards feast and safety. I love this image. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I mean, this is amazing. You know, David is out in the wilderness. He's got absolutely nothing. But for David now, it's like a table is spread, and he is sitting down to a feast. He says, my soul is satisfied 
I mean, what would it be like to say that? <laughs> to really think everything about who I am is totally satisfied. What would that be like? He says he's satisfied when he remembers God on his bed, when he meditates on him during the watches of the night. I, I, I love to see what's happening here. You know, even though David is out sleeping in the wilderness and, uh, you know, he is defenseless and he is exposed and he's vulnerable to attack every single night. For David, for David, it's like he's sleeping in the peace of a fortress guarded by a million warriors. Because when the sun sets on the horizon and the darkness begins to creep across that desolate wilderness for David, it's just the shadow of God's wing. It's not the darkness out here, God. It's you. It's you hovering over me. And I will sing songs of joy. And that is the kind of satisfaction And that is the kind of peace that believing and resting in God's love will give to people like you and me. And David knows that if the God of justice hovers over him, then he has nothing to fear, even if it means his life, even because there are those who seek to destroy his life. He says, the king shall rejoice in God, (laughs) and all who swear by him shall exalt. And that's the song, from hunger to feast, and from fear to safety. And there's, there's a word uh, for what David is doing here, and it will surprise exactly zero of you. What David is doing here is worship. That's what he's doing. And worship is the proper response of women and men who have come to believe that despite their unfaithfulness and sin, despite the fact that they're at the end of their rope and all of their formidable skills and talents and abilities have not come through again, they're in the wilderness. Worship is what happens when those people realize that God's steadfast love for them in Jesus is better than life. (laughs) That it's more than enough. And so, church, what I want to say to all of us is we simply cannot do without worship. (laughs) We can't live without it. And in particular, this kind of worship that David's doing, which is adoration, we have to do this together. We have to do this as individuals. We have to do this in our relationships and with our families. And David knew. He knew that we needed to do this. And so God gives us his song so that we can learn from it. And I want you to know that the church has found, through her experience, the church has found again and again and again that when we do this, when we worship, he changes us in it. It's not magical. (laughs) It's normal. And it's great. When we worship, when we order ourselves around the steadfast love of God in Jesus, the wilderness can begin to look like a feast table. And the darkness can begin to feel like the shadow of God's wing. I don't know about you, but I need that. Let me pray for us. 
Father, the, the Apostle Paul prayed for his friends in that church in Ephesus that they would be strengthened <laughs> so that they could begin to comprehend um, the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God in Jesus. And so we ask that same thing. We pray that same thing for ourselves. Do whatever you've got to do in us. Strengthen us however you've got to strengthen us so that we can begin to grow even more deeply in our understanding of just how much we are loved. Father, do this so that when we are in the wilderness, so that when we are at the end of our resources and we realize they have not done what we hoped they would do, that we could rest and find feast and find safety. Do this so that we will mature in our faith and so that we can become a people through whom you love this broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.